the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, string theory predictions tied up in quantum entanglements. Bain trade paperback release signals new dawning of universal consciousness that there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, but boy, the ones you pay for can taste pretty good if they include cheeseburgers. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. And I'm Bain Publishing Intern Anthony Martin. This time we have a two-part interview with Larry Correa and John Ringo. Larry and John discuss their new collaboration. Larry and John discuss their new collaboration set in Larry Correa's Monster Hunter universe. That book is called Monster Hunter Memoirs, Grunge, and it's out now at booksellers everywhere. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That's all coming up. Now here's the news. The Bain August trade paperbacks are now at booksellers. Christopher, what is what do we have out? Well, out now is 1636, The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright. This latest entry in Eric Flint's 1632 series collects the adventures of an alchemist from 1630s Europe who has adapted his ways now that the West Virginia town of Grantville has been ripped from its own time and thrown down in the mid-continental Germanic regions of Europe in 1632. The Gribbleflot's tales are humorous, thoughtful, and fun, so check that out. All right, sounds good. Anthony, uh, what else is out in trade paperback in August? Uh, well, perhaps? also out is Through Fire by Sarah A. Hoyt. Uh, this is book four in Sarah's Dark Ship series, and the follow-up to A Few Good Men. Dark Ship mechanic Zen Sienna finds herself on Earth in a beautiful palace being courted by the ruler of vast lands. Yet soon Zen is caught up in a revolution that comes a bit too close to imitating the original French Revolution, complete with beheadings. The good men are falling, and freedom may be dawning, but the trick is not to get killed in the transition. All right, and finally out in August is Redliner's 20th Anniversary Edition by David Drake. This has an all-new introduction by David Drake, and is a new edition of what for many is their favorite David Drake novel. It's a science fiction novel about the cost and consequences of being called to be a warrior fighting for a people and then trying to find a way to fit back into society where you might be expected to just turn off the very skills and emotion that allowed you to survive and triumph in your uh, life before. 1636, The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright. Through Fire by Sarah A. Hoyt and Redliners, Anniversary Edition by David Drake, are all available now at booksellers everywhere. Here is part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa and John Ringo discussing their new book, Monster Hunter Memoirs, Grunge. Part two will appear next time on the podcast. Uh, 
want to welcome Larry Correa and John Ringo to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hey, Larry Correa is the creator of the New York Times bestselling Monster Hunter International series, including Monster Hunter International and uh, Monster Hunter Vendetta, Monster Hunter Alpha, Monster Hunter Nemesis, and Monster Hunter Legion, as well as the creator of the Magic Noir-themed Grim Noir Chronicles, which uh, you may remember we uh, serialized Hard Magic, the first in that series, here on the podcast. He's the co-author with Mike Coopery of the Dead Six books in the uh, Dead Six Military adventure series, including the latest entry, Alliance of Shadows, which is coming up in October. It's a really great book I've been working on here. He is also the author of Son of the Black Sword, book one in the Forgotten Warrior Saga, as well as lots of other books and stories. Larry has been an accountant, part owner of a gun store, a shooting instructor, and a competitive shooter himself. He grew up in the California outback on a farm and now lives in Utah. And we have John Ringo. John is the New York Times bestselling creator of the Pauline War series, including groundbreaking first novel in the series, A Hymn Before Battle. Um, great book. The Council War series, the Empire Man series, co-author with David Weber, the Ghost, I guess you'd call it a techno-thriller series or something like that. The, uh, the Troy Rising series, uh, the Queen of Wands contemporary fantasy series, um, and the Black Tide Rising science-based zombie series. Um, we have just finished up serializing uh, Under a Graveyard Sky here on the podcast as well, and many other series and standalones. He's co-authored with David Weber, Michael Z. Williamson, Tom Crapman, Travis S. Taylor, Ryan Sear, Julie Cochran, and, and now Larry Correa. John was in the U.S. Army, rose to the rank of specialist as a member of the 82nd Airborne Division. He served four years active duty and two years of reserve with Florida National Guard. And he picked up the Combat Infantryman badge, Parachute is badge, Army Commendation Medal, Good Conduct Medal, Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal for Granada, and the National Defense Service Medal. At the moment, we are all gathered to talk about a new collaboration now at Booksellers Everywhere between Larry Correa and John Ringo. It's set in Larry's Monster Hunter universe and is called Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge. This is the first of three books in the Monster Hunter Memoirs subseries by Larry and John, and it is packed with loads of excitement and really some wicked fun. So I guess we should start at the beginning like the Bible does, a good book to emulate in many ways. So, fellows, uh, speak to us the creation story of Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge, if you would. Um, that's for John to tell. Uh, it, it came about in a really cool way. Um, I had gone through a period where I had been thinking a lot, but uh, every now and again I need to get some reading in. So I had already read the MHI series uh, as I talk about it in the book. The first time I read it, I really enjoyed it. So I went back to do a reread of the MHI series, and it got me thinking about what it would have been like back in my day uh, to be a monster hunter within the MHI universe. Uh, the, the technology was different. Within the main MHI books, the characters constantly have cell phones. They're communicating that way. They've got really high-speed electronics. Uh, they've got modern weaponry. They've got modern armor. Um, so I was like, well, what would it have been like in the 80s? And so, as is my want, I started thinking about that. And this character kind of grew, who was a, um, he was actually a rip of a character that I was thinking about doing for a, a completely different purpose. Um, but uh, this character who was just this, 
this really, really capable, knew that he was, kind of arrogant, um, real ladies' man, but he was one of those characters who's actually as good as he thinks he is, came about in my head. And the thing with a, with a character like that is that you have to have challenges for the character that are at the character's level. Um, so I kind of I, I kind of redid the character several ways, thought about different stuff, and then I got so interested in the story that I just sat down and wrote it in about two weeks. And I started posting snippets on Facebook of a monster, basically a Monster Hunter International fanfic. And then all of a sudden it was like, hey, um, John, have you asked Larry about this? And I'm like, you know, I probably should do that. Larry. Well, Larry, do you want to take it from there? What what the heck did you think when this suddenly appeared? I guess, how did it appear? Did it appear in your inbox? Well, no. What happened was um, we were putting together a Monster Hunter International anthology, uh, short stories from a bunch of different people. And that's oh, yeah, coming that was out next year. And, yeah, so I went to Tony Weisskopf, and I was like, uh, you know, we're, we're brainstorming people we want to invite to this anthology. And uh, so Tony had just found out about John writing a whole book in this. And so I go to Tony, I'm like, hey, Tony, do you think John would want to contribute a short story to this anthology? And she goes, well, you might want to talk to him because he's got something for you. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, it's a bit longer. And I was like, huh? So I, was like, I contacted John, and at that point he'd written, he'd written Grunge, uh, or he'd written the first book that would turn into Grunge. And uh, I was kind of blown away. I, I didn't see that coming. And uh, it was... I, yeah, and I, I was like it, halfway really done with the second book. All right, so let me get this straight. You wrote an entire book before Larry knew that you were you were doing this. But, of course, you wrote it in two, I actually two finished Grunge faster than Larry finished reading Grunge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. I am a slow... back and forth go after, after I mean did um, what did it feel like John coming back to this after you'd written it so um, so quickly with and, and dealing with Larry's um, you know the series creators uh, the god of this universe um, uh, I just tossed it to Larry and whatever Larry wanted to, to do with it was you know that was Larry's there, right. there were two aspects to that um, one of them 
it is Larry's universe. Two, I'm a really lazy SOB. And so I could throw all of that on Larry and just say, hey, Larry, I'm done with the book, except for eh, some minor stuff here and there. And, <laughs> and it's probably completely wrong for your universe, but eh, I'm going to go write Troy books now. Bye. <laughs> yeah, so I just filled in everything else that needed filling in. Well, it turned out really great. It's really a fun, fun read. The, well, let's talk about the story. Tell us the, well, maybe first, um, tell us about the basic setup of, of the Monster Hunter memoirs, uh, Grunge Universe. It's a bit of a historical novel, as John has alluded to. Um, so where are we in the Monster Hunter Universe timeline here? Well, it's, it's starting about, um, the big pivotal the yeah, so it's starting out, it's, it's in the mid-80s, so it's, uh, I'm trying to leave the books nebulous now where we're at in the timeline, because, you know, actual dates get pretty dated, I discovered, pretty fast, after you write the first one. Uh -huh. um, but it's basically a generation before, is what you're looking at. So, uh, guys that are, um, you know, old, experienced hunters in the current timeline are young men uh, at, at, the, at the point that John's book is taking place. And so, uh, like, Milo is a kid. I mean, Milo's a teenager. I mean, he's, a, like, late teens, early 20s uh, when we meet Milo. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in his probably late 40s in the, in the regular series. Now, Milo is your, uh, is your armorer in the mainline series? Armorer, resident mad scientist, and token uh, Mormon. And in, in this book, um, in the, the memoirs books, he's just the he's the wizard's apprentice in the armory. Um, so it, it it's it's a it's I tried to take a different look at Milo. He's not the grizzled old veteran that he is in the main books. Um, and without getting into too much stuff in the main books, I don't much I, I don't know how much Larry wants to talk about the main books. Um, but in the main books, there are some characters who were former hunters who have since become enemies. And in this book, they're major characters. They're actually mentor characters, or in one case, uh, sort of Guinevere to the characters Lancelot. Um, uh, that uh, you know, they're 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 positive, proactive protagonists on the good on the good side characters, whereas in the later books, they're not. Yeah, I, well, presumably a lot of people who pick up this will have read the some of the Monster Hunter books. For instance, Susan Shackelford, I believe, uh, makes a strong appearance in this in her her before time when she was incredibly beautiful and cool. Um, well, Ray is Ray is the primary mentor character for Chad, who is the main character in the Grudge books. And the Grunge books are memoirs, so it's all first person. It's it's him telling the stories of his hunts, and and there's lots of pro tips in there for hunters. Um, and and so you know one of his primary mentors is in in the primary books has become a a how do you want to describe that, Larry? Well, we can probably just say spoiler alert, and they can plug their ears for a minute. <laughs> well, she's a you know, a major bad guy in the Monster Hunter books, so. Yeah, and the yeah, major bad guy in the Monster Hunter books is actually one of the uh, one of the characters that Chad knows yeah. and interacts with. 
Well, before we get it, go any further, um, there's going to be some listeners that don't know this universe. Can you, um, maybe Larry, can you tell us about the intricacies of the Monster Hunter universe, or maybe both? Um, because some of this is is um, Chad Chad timeline stuff. Who is MHI? What does it mean to be read in on UF? And, and what the heck is Puff? Uh, okay, so Monster Hunter International is a private company that specializes in taking care of monster problems. The U.S. government pays a bounty uh, on monsters, and uh, it's called the Perpetual Unearthly Forces Fund, or Puff. And it's uh, started by Teddy Roosevelt because he had uh, he was a president with uh, monster hunting experience. The uh, monsters are kept secret. It's a there's a very specific reason for that in the series. Uh, and pretty much every rational government in the world abides by that, that they do their best to keep the existence of monsters secret. So hunters have to, to kind of work on the down low. So they are basically really heavily armed military contractors that, uh, that handle these various jobs. And so that's the company that Chad gets involved with. Uh, they've been around since 1895. Uh, it's a family company. And so we're dealing with a, uh, Kind of a kind of a family lineage. A bunch of the characters in both series are uh, are part of this same Shackleford family, and uh, down through the ages there. So the, the the memoirs books are kind of a, a look at the previous generation uh, of what we've got in the in the regular series. So it actually makes for a pretty dang cool spinoff because it's a bunch of stuff that uh, we haven't really talked about before, and uh, and you get to see a lot of people doing you know, in different positions of life or how certain people wound up in certain places and, and or why people are the way they are. It, it, it's pretty neat. So um, the, it, it is a pretty intricate series. Um, I like writing big, dumb explosion stuff, pulp action, but I try to have a lot of thought to it and try to make it so things make sense and how the universe ties together and, you know, if monsters were real, and this was an actual job that you could have hunting them, how it would work. And um, I don't know, it, it's been really popular. We've had a lot of fun with it. And I think a lot of people really glom onto the series. They uh, they could see themselves doing this for a living. That's one reason I think it's successful. Yeah. Well, John, the story is told as the first person narrative of Chad Gardenier, um, hence the memoirs in the title, obviously. Um, so tell us about Chad. Uh, Oliver Chadwick Gardenier. Well, first of all, although although Chad hates his entire name, it's Gardenier. Oh, okay. Gardenier. Okay. When the audiobook narrator asked about that, I was like, you're going to have to ask John, because my first thought was it was going to be Gardenier, like the uh, guy on uh, Band of Brothers. Nope, nope. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I used to, I once had somebody uh, named Sabatier almost take my head off because I said they were Mr. Sabatier. So I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, Chad comes from a family of academics, and he hates everything about his family. He despises his mother. Um, he disrespects his father, who is a even more of a womanizer than he is. His brother was a bully, um, and so he has decided that he is just going to be a, 
as as normal. He rebels against his family by being as normal as possible, at least on paper. He gets straight C's through high school. And when I say straight C's through high school, he is OCD about getting an absolutely perfect C in every single course, which, by the way, is really, really hard. And it's where people start to realize just how intelligent Chad is, because no matter what teachers do, he always manages to get a perfect C. Um, but uh, the other way that he rebels, especially against his mother, who is a, a, a peace act, you know, Vietnam War peace activist, the whole bit, uh, you know, raging commie, uh, is really upset that he won't get into drugs. Um, uh, is he joins the Marines. And when he joins the Marines, when you join the military, you're asked what your religion is, and he chooses primitive Baptist because it's the biggest stick in the eye to his mother he possibly can think of. Hmm. So you've got this very, very, this guy who's very, very OCD, very, very driven, um, incredibly intelligent, and has severe operational defiance disorder, at least against anything resembling his parents. <laughs> Well, he's kind of a, a he ends up, he's kind of, he's a genius. Getting um, deployed, he ends up getting deployed to Beirut. Yeah. Um, he's one of the guys who's blown up in the bombing. And he meets with a guy named Pete in what is obviously heaven. And Pete tells him that the boss has a mission for him back on Earth. So if he chooses to go back, and Pete makes it clear, you might not want to take this because you're in despite, you know, various sins, you're in. But uh, if you go back, it's going to really suck. Uh, and there might be a minor miracle and you might survive. And so Chad thinks about it a little bit, and he goes, well, you know, if the boss has a mission for me, I'll go back. And he's given a sign, which is 57. <laughs> he's like, hang on a second. You mean like Heinz 57? <laughs> I'm supposed to be looking for a particular 57? I don't know. The boss is a really busy guy. That's all he said. <laughs> like, okay. So he sends him back, and he survives the bombing through a minor miracle. And then later gets in, after getting out of six months of traction and physical therapy, ends up getting back into monster hunting. That's Oliver Chad, Chadwick Garnier in probably too large of a nutshell. Did anything... Um... Not to get too psychoanalytic or anything, but did Chad arise wholly from the mist of invention? Did this uh, is there anything autobiographical for either of you guys in this uh, character? I ideate a lot of stuff that will never get written, and what at one point I ideated a character who was actually a runaway character named Texas Dave, and Texas Dave actually has some great stories to him. Um, but when I started thinking about the character that would fit into this universe, I came up with this Oliver Chadwick or Ninian character. And a lot of aspects of Texas Dave bled over to it. Um, but uh, when I really started to think about it, I realized that with, a, with certain exceptions, the guy that he, he reminded me the most of that I know, because you have a tendency to draw characters from people that you've met, was a buddy of mine during when I was in the 82nd named Keith Burdine. Um Keith just had this perpetual joy to be 
and everything that he went at, he went at 100%. And he was just crazy, especially when it came to driving. Um, he had been a reserve deputy, and he drove just in an insane manner. Um, it was when I started having Chad driving around in the next book that I started to realize, oh, hang on a second, this is Duck, which was his nickname. Um, because he was like Chad, he was short, he was blonde, he was blue-eyed, um, and he had this just perpetual go-at-everything 100%, let's just, you know, have a great time and throw all caution to the winds. I mean, that was Duck. Um, about five years ago, he'd gotten out of the Army years ago, he was an air marshal, and uh, he was feeling really sick, and he went to a hospital when he was on, on a trip, and they immediately admitted him for leukemia. And about four weeks later, he was dead. Oh, man. Uh, it was just real sudden, and he, he didn't even die directly of the leukemia. They thought they'd kick the leukemia, but he got an infection. And because they'd had to kill his entire immune system, the infection was what killed him. But uh, it, it just came out of nowhere. Um, so once I started to realize that, that, that there was an aspect of duck to Keith, uh, or an aspect of duck to Chad, uh, it became a little more personal. Um, but uh, the one big thing that I'll say about duck was that he was not nearly the womanizer <laughs> that Chad is. <laughs> Because Chad is just a lounge lizard. Well, he's got good justification, at least in his own mind, for doing it. As I guess all womanizers do. <laughs> so, so the memoir format allows for some pretty cool and, and funny stuff. Um, sort of a little meta. For instance, it is it's sort of a self help manual, or not a self help manual, a manual. It's got lots of pro tips, like you mentioned, including uh, the hunting of the taunting of trolls. Um, can y'all share some of these tips? Uh, Larry, you you want me to take that one? Yeah, go for that, John. Um, I, I had to tweak some of the gun ones. <laughs> but that was just heading into my, my, my personal area of, uh, of nerdery. So, um, uh, I should I should point out that this isn't this isn't answering that question. But when I actually sent Larry the email, at places it would be Larry, can you insert some gun geekery here? I mean, it would actually say that. I mean, or can you insert some gun porn here? Because one of the things about Chad that is not the case with me is that Chad is a gunsmith. He knows guns inside and out. I do not. Larry knew a lot more about them, so that was one of the things that when I tossed it back to the senior to to the senior author, I was like, "Needs more gun porn here. Needs more about how this actually works here." Um, yeah, I, but, I, I uh, never have a problem with gun porn. <laughs> the uh, you know self tell. We'll get to that. Uh, you know the 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 pro tips that that are in there. This book is designed as a. An easy-to-read, interesting book of anecdotes from an experienced hunter that is it, it is supposed to only be read by people who are read in on unearthly forces. This is this book is top secret. You know, this is not a book that the normal general public is allowed to read, and so it it has pro tips in there from this experienced hunter about 
you know, this is this is the kind of thing that you need to know going into this situation. Um, don't make Billy Goat jokes to trolls. <laughs> it really pisses them off. <laughs> and trolls are bad enough without them being really angry. Um, always keep an inventory of all of your gear, and after every single mission, replace everything in the inventory. Um, there's there's just a whole series within the book of various pro tips, um, because it's 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 directed. The the whole purpose of the book is for hunters to read it. It's not. It was not a book that was written as fiction. It was a book that was written as this is the reality. You're going into this situation. I'm an experienced hunter. I'm going to give you some tips on how to survive. Yeah, so, you know, it, did, it's kind of meta that way. Yeah, one of the things I did is, is like, in the in the current timeline, uh, I added it so that basically these books or these these um, these journals were in the library. And if you if you followed the, um, the the regular series, there was an incident in the '90s where a big chunk of the library got blown up and uh, damaged. And uh, and so what I did is I set it up so that in the current, like as of you know right now in the in the regular timeline, the guy who's in charge of the library finds these things, um, and they've kind of been lost. And so it's like so they, so now the information in there is is once again available, uh, but it was it was gone for a long time just because people didn't have it. And I don't want to say I don't want to say too much there, but uh, the, that that enables me to tie into some of the stuff later. In, uh, in the current series. Well, let me, all right, so um, I, I got two questions coming out of that. Uh, Larry, do you think any of this series will, will kind of leak into future Monster Hunter mainline books? Um, and what are your personal favorite parts that we might see? Oh, that's, okay, yeah, that, yes, because I'm working on, uh, on MHI 6, or uh, the 6 regular series book right now. And, uh, yes, I am trying to uh, get stuff in there because this is information people know. I am not sure what yet. Um, so that I, I don't know for sure, but I, I want to tie it in more because this is, cause I plotted out. Uh, I plot out. I've got the next uh, – basically the whole rest of the series plotted out. So um, I'm, a, I'm an outliner. I'm a long-term planner, outliner kind of guy. So I'm just trying to figure out the best way to go about that. Um, I'm not I don't sure think it's very yet. important. One of the things about MHI is is that hunters come and go. One of the, the things that Larry and I discussed was Larry had an issue with the death rate, not in this book, but in the next book. But one of the things I pointed out was that all of the hunters that were lost in the next book were not killed, so they don't end up with a silver plaque. Um, a lot of them were injured. But MHI has... It, you know, you look at it, and it has a, a pretty fair turnover, just of people who go, okay, this job was crazier than I thought it was going to be. I'm not going to do it anymore. You've got people who uh, who are injured and, and invalided out, and you have, you know, the hunters that are killed. Um, well, and it pays really was a, a lot of people quit after a while just because they're rich. Yeah, it, and and again, you know that that's another reason to get out. Chad was one of those hunters who was in his day one of those people that everybody knew was uh, the the thing about Chad was 
and and Chad doesn't discuss this, but if it does come up, you know, if his name does get mentioned in the later books, people from in the day remember that the thing about it was when you worked with Chad, Chad survived. Okay, uh, almost everybody that Chad works with dies um, because Chad goes into situations that they can't survive. Um, and, and he does it because he has no fear of death. He's actually looking forward to it. Um, so the thing about Chad is he was just another hunter back in the day. He was a premier hunter. He was he was one of the known hunters, but he was just a guy. Um, was he was he friends? But but yeah. But it was one of those people that Milo doesn't talk about a lot because he was kind of special to him and. And I'll, I'll just give it away. Chad doesn't survive. Does, doesn't survive into the into the future. Um, well, I mean, uh, it, it's it's sort of telegraphed in in the whole idea of the series as well, because um, he's not a character that appears in the in the future books. But but I am sure that he has a very interesting uh, path ahead of him before that. Before that happens. Yeah, the ending of the third book, as I have written it, actually talks about him getting ready to go to a particular event. That if you've read the main books, you know that a whole bunch of people died at that event. And uh, and he's it, at the end of the book, he's actually making notes to himself saying, I'm going to this event. And so that telegraphs to the reader that that's, he doesn't come out. Yeah, that's where um, that is. At the big, uh, at, at the big, shin, the, the, the Ur event that sort of forms the, uh, the whole Monster Hunter mainline series. So, uh, weapons. Okay. Let's get back to that. I am only an interested amateur, so I'll just ask and, and let y'all go on about it. Um, silver works against lots of monsters. Silver isn't great for normal slugs, I wouldn't imagine. So, I guess the question is what what are the real world guns and other deadly toys and what are some of the modifications for monster hunting? Uh, well you're talking to a guy who spends a lot of real money on guns that so he can use them in the books. <laughs> <laughs> that has research research. <laughs> uh, research purposes. Yeah, I uh, just wound up with a four thousand dollar rifle here because uh Owen uses it in the next book. So uh, yeah, that's Research. If uh, anybody from the tax commission is listening, um, can I can I interject there just real quick, uh, Larry? Go for it. Yeah. Um, I knew somebody who worked in a, a particular field. Um, it has to do with my ghost series. He was actually one of the guys that I I went to for for research. And at one point he was get, he was having an on on site audit. Um, he had been a Professor of Abnormal Psychology at Harvard. Okay, first of all, he's a former Marine Force Recon Vietnam era. Then he got a degree in psychology, ended up as a professor of abnormal psychology at Harvard, and finally quit to become, as he put it, a professional pervert. I won't get into details here. Um, but uh, at one point, he had an on-site IRS audit at his job. At, at, at the, the store that he ran in Boston. And the IRS auditor said, you spent $6,000 on research and on, on R&D and testing? He goes, yeah. He goes, um, can, you, can you justify that? He says, sure. And he walked over and he opened up a closet 
from which spill various items. Now, if you're following the general concept, you can understand what items spilled out onto the floor. <laughs> yeah, this is all the stuff that we've tested over the last year that I don't think is safe enough or doesn't work very much, very well or isn't very comfortable. If you want any of it, feel free to take it because we're not going to be selling it. Uh, <laughs> kind of a public service, as it were, he's performing. Yeah, it's uh, it's named uh, the Sword of Morning, correct? M O U R N I N G. Yeah, Mono Ken. Yeah. Tell us about the sword. Um, I'd actually have to read it directly from the book, which I didn't have that up. Um, sword of Morning is a three is a three soul blade. Uh, the term three-soul blade in katanas means a sword with which the, with the proper strike can go through three necks in one blow. Um, it was created during the Meiji period, um, and it was uh, created by one of the uh, emperor's sword masters. The Swordmaster's son, or the Swordmaster's wife and younger daughter had died, and the only person he had left was his apprentice son. The apprentice son became ill, and eventually, despite everything that the best priests and doctors of the Imperial Court could do, he died. And so his, his son and his heir and his only remaining light was dead. The swordmaster then, or the 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 swordsmith master, then began to search for the most perfect blanks of steel that he could find. He searched and he searched and he searched. The master of of the sword makers of the imperial court became very angry with him because he would he would throw aside the finest blanks, and they would simply not be suitable to them. Finally, he found the blanks of steel that were to his quality, and he sat down and for a year. He forged the sword, quenched only by his tears. At the end, he had created the most perfect blade he would ever create in his life, and he knew it. He committed seppuku so that he could join his family. This is the story of Sword of Morning. That was part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa and John Ringo discussing their new novel, Monster Hunter Memoirs, Grunge. Part two and the conclusion of the interview will be available on the next Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, 
the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. She refilled her own glass and said, The oldest human settlement in the Ribbon Stars is Pantelleria, a first-tier colony. After the hiatus, the thousand-year break in interstellar travel, which resulted from the war fought with diverted asteroids by Earth against her original colonies. The wonder was not that the war had ended human star travel, but rather that it hadn't ended the human species. Pantelleria planted colonies of her own in the cluster. One of them, Corsera, was found to have rich veins of copper. Miranda nodded, but she didn't speak. She was carrying Adele's statement that her opinion wasn't desired to the point of not saying anything. I've overreacted again, Adele thought. I'm not a monster that people have to be afraid of. And as Adele thought that, she realized that it wasn't true, that she had killed scores, probably hundreds of people, mostly with headshots. She was a monster by the standards of most people. Pantelleria was forcibly annexed to the Alliance 18 years ago, Adele said. That set off the most recent period of war between ourselves and the Alliance, the one which just ended with the Treaty of Amiens. Pantelleria regained its independence with the treaty, but there were quite a few citizens, including most of those who had become leaders during Alliance rule, who weren't happy with the independent government. Adele let her eyes travel around the room. She almost never looked at the library's familiar disorder, though she spent at least half her waking hours in the room. Because Miranda Dorst faced her expectantly, Adele noted that the grain of the bookcases matched that of the moldings of the walls. The wood for both came from Chatsworth Major, and the work had probably been done by the same woodwrights when the townhouse was first built. The glass fronts were dusty. Everything in the room was dusty. The cleaning staff had been directed not to touch Adele's books and files, but something had to be done. Would you like me to clean while you're gone? Miranda said. She's reading my mind. But of course, she wasn't doing anything of the sort. Miranda was following Adele's eyes and probably reading her expression, then coming to the logical conclusion from the evidence. I don't mean straighten up, which would be horrible, Miranda said. But to remove dust with a very small vacuum, a static broom would be worse than straightening, wouldn't it? Yes, said Adele. Careful cleaning would be helpful. She remembered the cleaner. He had been male. After the fact, Adele realized that he probably never listened to anything a female employer said, who had carefully interfiled chips from two separate files to bring them into order by date. It hadn't occurred to him that Adele was moving chips from one pile to the other after she had processed them. Adele, is something wrong? Miranda said. What must my face have looked like, Adele thought. She said, not now, thank you. I was talking about Pantelleria. A number of Pantellerians on the losing side politically fled to Corsera, taking as much movable wealth as they could. 
There was unrest on Coursera anyway. The colonists thought far more of the planetary income was going to the homeworld than was justified. Were they correct? Miranda said. The discussion of cleaning seemed to have put them back on the more equal basis that Adele preferred. So long as the younger woman didn't decide that her own opinion should matter to Adele. Taxation. Levies, generally, were high while Coursera was part of the alliance, Adele said. The newly independent Pantellerian government wasn't showing any sign of reducing them. On the other hand, she shrugged. Coursera might well have gained a reduction by measures short of war. And I don't know of a historical example of a colony or client state which didn't think it paid more than a fair share of its wealth in taxes or tribute. Miranda nodded agreement but didn't speak aloud. With the exiles supporting independence, Coursera revolted from Pantelleria last year, Adele said. As she had hoped, the situation on Coursera was coming into clearer relief in her mind, just as the library had to her eyes. And three months ago, a Pantellarian expeditionary force landed to recover the planet. I've always understood that it's difficult to transport an army from one planet to another, Miranda said. She sat upright, her hands crossed in her lap like an obedient student. How many soldiers did Pantellaria send? Adele nodded crisply, a stern teacher acknowledging a student's intelligent question. She said, the expeditionary force is of 2,000 troops with light armor. They're accompanied by a naval force of six destroyers, whose crews could provide another 1,000 personnel if used as ground troops. And an uncertain number of Corsairans are supporting the Pantellarians as a sort of militia. Adele paused to smile thinly, then realized it would be a good time to take a drink. She half-filled her glass, all that remained in the pitcher. Before she could put down the empty pitcher, Tovera took it and replaced it with a full one. Two house servants hovered nervously down the hall, holding trays with more beer and glassware. When Adele glanced toward them, they snatched their eyes away. The more difficult question is the strength of the defenders, she said. All settlement is along the river Cephasis. The mining region, the southern highlands, appears to be entirely hostile to Pantellarian control, though that doesn't mean all miners are ready to pick up a weapon and march down the river to attack the expeditionary force, which landed near the mouth. Still, there are about 30,000 miners, based on similar historical situations. Adele smiled grimly. If more politicians knew anything about history, there would be fewer wars. And if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. Most of the miners would shoot at the expeditionary force if it attacked the highlands. They're not trained, though, and they don't have a real leader. She cleared her throat, then remembered to drink. The Pantellarians landed at Harbinger in the Delta, she said. The planetary capital was at Brotherhood at the base of the highlands, the port of the mining region. But the exiles, Miranda said, leaning forward slightly. Adele nodded, a very clever student. Yes, she said. The exiles include some former military officers, and they've brought with them enough professionals to provide a training cadre for the Corsairans whom they've hired. They have money. One of the two factions calls itself the Corsairan Navy and defected with a Pantellarian destroyer. The exile factions make up only a few hundred troops each, but such evidence as I have suggests that those are likely to be the equal of a similar number of Pantellarian regulars. 
Are Pantellarian regulars any good? Miranda asked. I'm sure some of them must be, Adele said. I have no record of any, however. Miranda's smile indicated that she understood not only what Adele had said, but also what she meant. Daniel has a real prize here. The largest body of trained troops on the rebel side, Adele said, is the former Alliance garrison, about a battalion, five or six hundred men. It wasn't repatriated when Pantelleria became independent, because most of them were recruited on Corsera. There's no data about their quality as troops, but they're trained and equipped. When Corsera rebelled, they took the name of the Corsiran army. Records from other sources on Corsera, everything that Adele had gleaned from Mistress San's files, continued to refer to them as the garrison. They were the instrument of alliance control until independence, and they're not well liked by anyone else on Corsera. They're nonetheless the strongest single element of the forces opposing the Pantellarians. Adele considered whether or not to explain what she would be doing. Why not, she decided. What had held her back was what she considered decent reticence. Others seemed to think she was secretive. I don't hide my personal life. I just don't see a need to broadcast it to the world. My particular interest is in a religious group, the Transformationists, Adele said. There are about 500 of them settled in the valley of a tributary of the Cephasus, 50 miles south of Brotherhood. This is deep into the mining region, but their community is devoted to harmony and mutual support. They don't appear to have a philosophy or ritual beyond that. I'm not one to come to for explanation of spiritual enlightenment. Do they have soldiers? said Miranda, filling her glass again. There's enough dust here to make anybody thirsty, Adele thought. She'd let things go too long because she didn't care. The transformationists have a hundred personnel in the siege lines around Harbinger, Adele said. But they appear to rotate their troops back and forth from the Pearl Valley frequently. I would judge they must have 300 people capable of serving, though they may not be able to arm more than half that number. She paused and considered. The transformationist troops don't show gender distinctions, she said. The garrison and the local volunteers, the miners basically, have almost no women. Miranda frowned. Though she hadn't asked, Adele explained, That sort of prejudice is common on less advanced worlds, and among the less educated classes of advanced ones. The classes which provide most miners and professional soldiers, that is. Adele smiled faintly. Tovera and I have not infrequently found it an advantage, she said. But of course, I never expected to like reality. Yes, said Miranda, I understand that. Her expression softened and she added, though reality for me has improved a great deal since I met Daniel. Adele nodded. She decided not to say that this would change very quickly if Daniel should die violently, which was a probable result of the way he lived his life. And then she smiled. Miranda knows that. Her brother had been vaporized in a space battle, which could as easily have claimed Daniel instead, or Daniel also. Miranda was focused on her present life, which was very good. As is mine, but somehow I can't accept that. Yes, Adele said aloud. I should learn from you. She cleared her throat and said, I will be involved with the transformationists. Helping them, I suppose, 
because my principal has business in Pearl Valley, and they'll expect him to sing for his supper, so to speak. There's nothing more of importance which I can think to tell you, though I should know more this afternoon, after I speak with a man who just arrived from Coursera. If anything changes, I will tell you. Miranda rose to her feet in a single smooth motion. Thank you, Adele, she said. I feel better now. Adele grimaced. I can't imagine why, she said. I don't even know what help I'll be providing to the cultists. She hadn't meant to use the word, but it was adequately descriptive for the present purpose. Since they probably don't know themselves. People rarely do, I've found, though they believe they do. Adele realized that she was describing the situation as though she would be assisting Daniel to help Ricard Cleveland. A simple way to carry out her own mission for Deirdre would be to arrange that Arnaud captured Coursera without Cinnabar assistance. Would that be treason? And to whom? Adele smiled sadly. For the first time, she understood the way her parents had made the decisions which had led to their heads being displayed on Speaker's Rock. Adele, Miranda said, if Daniel were fishing with no communicator along, how would you contact him in an emergency? Adele pursed her lips. It wasn't a question she had expected, but she didn't really care what information people wanted from her. It was her job to provide information, period. Fishing on the Bantry estate, she clarified. Miranda nodded agreement. I would use satellite imagery to track his boat, Adele said. If I were at Bantry myself, I would borrow an air car to reach him. Tovera can drive well enough. I learned to drive an air car, Miranda said. But I'd have to call you to access the satellites, if the situation arose again, that is. Yes, Adele said, of course. Tovera led the girl downstairs again to the front door. Adele went back to her logbooks. I hope Daniel knows what he has there, Adele thought. I certainly do. Daniel had never thought about the appearance of the Sands townhouse. It wasn't the sort of question that interested him. If someone had asked him what he expected Cleveland House would look like, he would have guessed it was something like Chatsworth Minor or the Almoner, the Leary townhouse in Zenos. This is, he murmured to Adele as they waited for a servant to take them to Ricard Cleveland. Unexpected. Yes, said Adele. From her curt tone, her opinion was as negative as Daniel's own. It looks like a bloody whorehouse, Hogg said, voicing much the same thought, though without the disapproval. A bloody fancy whorehouse. The sand residents stood in a row of houses much like Chatsworth Minor in age, though of relatively modest construction. Two had been knocked together to create Cleveland House, as it was now called. The new common facade lighted the three-story entrance hall with a large, east-facing circular window. Adele glanced up at the window and said, That's called an Oriel window. Master Cleveland had a sense of humor. She looked around at the twisted pillars of colored marble and panels with gold designs inlaid on panels of polished red stone. The frieze just below the coffered ceiling was made of iridescent tiles in primary colors and gold. A pity. Adele added, in a voice dry enough to suck moisture from desert air, that he didn't have a sense of taste as well. Master Ricard will see you now in the main hall, sir and lady, said the servant, who had gone into the interior of the house. The doorman remained with them in the hall.
Will your servants? They'll wait here, Daniel decided. The stone benches built against the front wall didn't look particularly comfortable. But Hogg was used to sitting in a hunting blind during winter storms. Daniel understood very little of Tovera, but he was confident that personal comfort wasn't one of her priorities either. A glass of cider wouldn't come amiss, said Hogg. He was deliberately prodding the pansy servants of this knocking shop, which meant he hadn't taken a good look at these servants. Fit young men who spoke with cultured accents. They weren't the sort of staff you would expect in a house like this, but they were the sort that people like Mistress Sand had around them. Hogg's rural upbringing had played him false. Before Daniel decided how to respond, Tovera said in a tone of amused disdain, Take a look at them, Hogg. Hogg did. He then spread his hands on top of his thighs, palms down. Sorry, buddy, he said to the nearer servant, the doorman. I'm sure there's cider in the cellar, Captain Leary, said the other man. I guess I've drunk enough this morning already, Hogg said, and I haven't had a drop. He looked at Daniel and said, Sorry, master, won't happen again. The guide bowed Daniel and Adele into a large hall. He was smiling. Daniel paused, looked at the man more closely and said, If your name is Hutton, I was in the academy with your brother. That would be my cousin Julius, Captain Leary, the servant said. When he's next in Zenos, I'll tell him I've met you. He'll be envious. A slender man stood in front of a vast green fireplace. He walked forward to meet them, extending his right hand. If the entrance hall had been gaudy, this room was that in spades. It, too, was a full three stories high. The whole ceiling was a skylight of stained glass. The pilasters which supported it were topped by gargoyles rather than capitals, and the fluted shafts had been gilded. Paintings of men in armor and women in gauzy dresses marched around the wall's upper range, while mural tiles of a hunting scene set in a forest covered the band at floor level. The floor level was mirrored. Daniel found the effect disconcerting because it multiplied every movement. Captain Leary? said the young man, shaking Daniel's hand. He bowed to Adele and said, Letty Mundy, I'm Rickard Cleveland, and I'm honored to speak with you. Cleveland nodded toward the huge fireplace. I'm told, he said, that you could roast a whole ox on that hearth. If this whelp thinks he's going to impress O'Leary with that. Aloud, Daniel said. On Bantry, we were more given to fish fries, but each to his own taste, of course. I understand perfectly, Cleveland said. This hearth, and the way he rebuilt Mother's family home generally, sums up an aspect of my father's character. I aped his flamboyance, his self-importance, and his need to be seen to be important by other people. Whatever you've heard about my behavior before I left for Coursera is quite true, or at any rate, the truth is just as bad. I see, Daniel said. His opinion of Cleveland's character had just risen and also his opinion of Cleveland's intelligence. If he's chosen this absurd room to demonstrate his present self-awareness, then there may be more to the Coursera business than I've assumed. I was spared father's taste for malachite and guilt, Cleveland added, smiling broadly. He nodded again toward the fireplace of dark green stone with black markings, which is a small blessing, I realize, in comparison with the rest. Daniel laughed. Not so very small, I think, 
he said. He gestured to the nearest of the room's several square tables. They were of a size for cards. Are the chairs around those tables comfortable, he asked. If they are, I'll pick one that doesn't require me to look at the fireplace. Cleveland smiled again and waved them to the table. When his visitors took places on opposite sides, he settled into the chair between them with his back to the door. I felt alone my whole life, Cleveland said. My father had no use for me. I mean, literally. I was of no use in advancing his ambitions, so he ignored my existence. Mother tried. I think she would have tried harder if I hadn't determinedly driven her away because I wanted to be a great man like my father. And because I was such a nasty little prick, I didn't have any friends, which I didn't realize because I was surrounded by spongers. Adele had taken out her data unit. Cleveland glanced at her, but he didn't comment or show concern. He probably knew something of Adele, but even so, her behavior often disconcerted people who expected her to pay obvious attention to them while they were speaking. Now, I'm not offering this as an excuse for my behavior, Cleveland said, which of course it isn't. But I want you both to understand why the fellowship I found within the transformationist community had such a powerful effect on me. I won't be surprised if you continue to think of me as daft, but do accept that I'm quite sincere in my daftness. Daniel glanced at Adele. Her control wands moved in subtle fashions, adjusting the information which danced above her personal data unit like dust motes in colored sunlight. The holograms coalesced only at the angle of the user's eyes. She was letting Daniel take the lead in the discussion, though if Cleveland thought Adele wasn't listening to him, he was badly mistaken. It was quite possible that she was reading the conversation as a text crawl on her display, of course. Daniel knew his friend preferred to observe reality through an interface. Master Cleveland, Daniel said, leaning forward. I don't have any problem with what other people believe, so long as they don't expect their beliefs to affect my behavior. I gather you believe there's a treasure on Coursera. My colleague and I have come here to learn why you believe that. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to Bane intern Anthony Martin, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a bandolier of shotgun shells loaded with magic dust made from ground-up pixies who strayed a little too close to the bug zapper down at the fishing pier, as well as a band of elves on banjos and dulcimers playing rock and murder ballads, as well as lays of thanks and praise to Larry Correa and John Ringo, co-authors of Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 